Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. It's located in your church Bibles on page 959. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Please be seated. Let's pray as we come to our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Father, our prayer this morning is that the same God who has opened our eyes by his spirit to the fact and the joy of the salvation, the rescue that's available to us through Jesus, would also, Lord, would you open our eyes to the truth and the application of this particular passage of Scripture to us, very foreign to us in many ways and yet deeply encouraging and helpful in others. Lord, would you help us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, we looked at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the ancient debate concerning head coverings in worship. Pastor Matthews, must, I must say, did a superb job. Although he was too polite to say so, I'm quite sure he was not altogether pleased at the passage that I gave him. This week, notwithstanding the snow and the fact that we were due to have a communion service, we have decided to leapfrog that classic communion passage, which we're going to look at next week, when, Lord willing, we're actually going to have communion. And so today, we are going to study 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you understood what I just said. You are paying closer attention than I could reasonably expect on a snowy three-day weekend. Let me encourage you. If you are new to Christianity, perhaps unsure whether you are ready to commit yourself to following Christ, some of the stuff in these next chapters will seem really like the twilight zone of Christian faith. The issue of speaking in tongues and the witness of miracles in public worship asks the modern Christian and those who are examining Christianity 
to go not only through a cultural and a historical time warp, but also for many of us through an experiential one. These things really happened. These things were blessings to the church, and in many cases they still are. But there is much here that is likely to surprise, and perhaps even to shock you. So regardless, here's the principle in these chapters, whether it be the issue of head coverings, or communion, or speaking in tongues, or miracles, if you and I are going to understand what these things mean from the Bible for us today, we have to go back to ancient Corinth before we can bring the Bible to present-day Richmond. So here are the questions we're going to ask in that regard of these 11 verses at the beginning of chapter 12. Remember again that Paul is teaching in the context about Christian worship. These are the questions that have been given to him by the Corinthians under the general theme which he's established from the start of the letter, which is the big issue at Corinth. Not tongues, but unity. Unity in the spirit and the nature of Christ's church and how she is to behave. So these three questions for today. What was it like to be in a Christian worship service in Corinth in the mid-first century? What was and what is the gift of speaking in tongues? And who is the Holy Spirit and how does he give gifts to the church? Now, you know, looking at that list, it wouldn't be unreasonable to deal with this passage and those questions in the opposite order. But arbitrarily, this is the way that we're going to proceed. So having heard Renee read this passage, let's ask ourselves this first question. What would it have been like to be in a Christian worship service in ancient Corinth in the mid-first century, around 55 AD? And if you think about that, perhaps only 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Well, piecing together evidence from all over Paul's letters, we know that there is no one order of service that the ancient church practices. We can't find any such order in the New Testament. But the style of the worship, particularly in these letters, seems to have been Greek, unrestrainably Greek, rather Southern European. Unlike rather restrained and formalized, perhaps passive in some ways Jewish worship, it must have seemed chaotic, more like a rave than a service. We'll see more of this as the letter goes on, but it was so spontaneous, if you can imagine it, and so exuberant and so predictable that at the end of chapter 14, you can almost imagine Paul going through culture shock yet again, even though he was hundreds of miles away, saying, everything should be done decently and in order. But orderliness and decorum wasn't what he was chiefly worried about, as we'll see. If you walked into a Corinthian worship service, from all that we can tell, the first thing that would strike you is that just anyone could walk in, whoever they were, and people did. We have direct indications of this from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. These worship services were come one, come all, come as you are, let it all hang out kind of affairs. There would be a good deal of singing. There would be speaking to one another in psalms, as Paul directs, singing to one another with hymns, many of which were taken from the Bible. 
There would be teaching from the Old Testament books, the scriptures as they knew them, and perhaps the reading, likely the reading of Paul's letters, perhaps even to the Corinthian church. There were prayers offered, there would be offerings taken, appeals made on behalf of the poor or of those far away in the church who were in need. There may have been sick people who were brought in, even in the middle of the worship service, an opportunity for them to be prayed over and healings expected. But all kinds of people with all kinds of motives and questions and objections could wander into these services and participate. When I was a young pastor in London many years ago when we were serving there, our church reached out, because, largely because of where it was, to the people who were on our doorstep. We had a whole collection of people who suffered together, not only with poverty, but also with mental illness, specifically with paranoid schizophrenia. We had a lot of people who were so unused to church, I remember, one day that uh, someone came in, having never been in church before, but was so exuberant and so willing to participate in worship that he picked up the, the bulletin and started reading the directions about how to pray as if they were themselves a prayer to God. It was wonderful and it was very raw. And in its way, I like to think it was Corinthian in the way that it was coming about. At Corinth, was there some kind of worship leader? Well, there probably was, at least to kick things off, someone perhaps like Stephanus from chapter 16 that Paul directly mentions. But other than that, there was likely, as we know, no paid clergy or minister or congregational leader. People would get up and contribute in probably a similar way to the way that you see in many brethren churches today, except that there was this energy and this enthusiasm and this spontaneity and thrown into this mix immaturity. People had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea who should be saying what or when they should be saying it or who had authority to, to talk at one particular point or another. There would be interruptions. There would be, if you will, taking of authority that wasn't theirs to take. And sometimes it would all work as it was supposed to, and other times it must have seemed like just one big glorious mess. But God was in it. And this was the early church all over. And sometimes us too. I have friends uh, from uh, some years ago who, who used to spend time in the church in Chile uh, under the years of the dictatorship of um, Augusto Pinochet. And they would describe how in the middle of uh, riots with uh, clouds of tear gas passing over their heads, they would feel and know the passing of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit through them like a wave. And they were from a Pentecostal background, but undoubtedly God was working there in a way that was unexpected. But think about this, as messy as it could be, it was because there were bigger messes than the Corinthian church that Paul was not presently with them. So if, Paul, if people could be spoken to by God there and proclaim people from outside, God is really among you, well then the same thing can happen here. And I find that an encouraging thought. Second question, what was and what is? the gift of speaking in tongues. Look at verse D and verse E. 
of verse 10. To one, Paul writes, is given various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. And by tongues, he means languages of one kind or another. What does it mean, then, to speak in tongues? It's not, after all, the kind of thing that one typically comes across in a uh, Presbyterian worship service where everything is done uh, directly, uh, decently, and in good order. But some of you have encountered this as part of your own worship history in a charismatic or a Pentecostal or an Assembly of God church uh, or in many places overseas where this is the prevailing method of worship. I love this short definition from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary from people who have clearly never experienced this, the gift of tongues. They say, is ecstatic utterance associated with possession of the Holy Spirit. The article that is there reads like a bunch of people in lab coats defining the phenomenon of baseball who've never seen a game, let alone played the sport. There is an aspect to this form of worship that if you haven't experienced it, probably it will be scary and extremely foreign to you. And certainly for people within our tradition, it has been a thing that is foreign. So first of all, we have to say speaking in tongues, speaking in unknown languages, was definitely and may still be a thing which God has legitimately chosen in times and places to give to the church as a gift. Paul, we notice, tells the Corinthians not to forbid it as troublesome as it may have seemed. Chapter 14, verse 39. What do we need to know about it? Well, we need to know it had numerous applications. Many of these you will find in the book of Acts. There was the famous episode, after all, one that is unforgivable and at the root of the experience of the church from Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the church together spontaneously began praising God in actual human languages that they had previously no intellectual knowledge of. And they started speaking them in the hearing of other people who could understand them because they spoke those languages. And it was as if the curse of the Tower of Babel was being turned around. And then there was the turning point moment, which, again, cannot be overestimated in Acts 10, when Peter preaches to a Roman centurion's household, and we read that while Peter was explaining the gospel to them, preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and these people, Gentiles, for the very first time, showed, manifested the presence of the Spirit by speaking in tongues and praising God. Why was that important? Because up until then, only Jews had done so. So remarkable was it that Peter hot-footed it back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles, hey, we need to rethink this Jewish-Gentile division. And then there was the incident in Acts 19 when Paul met some Jewish nominal believers who had known something of the ministry of John the Baptist and had heard something of what he said about the Christ who was to come. He explained the gospel to them, and they too began speaking in tongues and prophesying because it wasn't just a Gentile thing either. So speaking in tongues was complicated, but when genuinely given, it gave glory to God. Now notice, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit within human beings 
is not, first of all, something that happens automatically, or secondly, by some religious ritual, or three, even something that you are normally aware of when it happens, when the operation of the Spirit comes. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who explained the operation of the Spirit this way in his own life, in his uh, book, Surprised by Joy. He explained that before he got on the motorbike to go to Whipsnade Zoo, he did not believe in Christ. But when he got off the motorbike at Whipsnade Zoo, he did. Who is to explain the operations of the Spirit? Without the Spirit, the claims of the Bible will mean nothing to you. But with him, suddenly, even if you don't understand everything, the lights will suddenly turn on. Your heart will be all in. So Paul's prayer in the Ephesians is for people just like us, that we, by the Spirit, would find that the heart, eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we might know the wonders of God. Our blindness to God will be lifted, if we will, but turn to him. And that, too, is an operation of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the work of the Spirit was a very practical thing, as at Pentecost, so that people could then understand the gospel in their own language. Sometimes it was a thing of ecstatic wonder. All kinds of humans, ordinarily separated by economy or class or race, speaking together in the tongues of angels. Other times it could be quite odd. What Paul means here by the phrase speaking in tongues seems to refer specifically to a private ecstatic language of praise that he experienced himself as a personal communication of blessing from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18, I thank God, Paul says, that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I would rather speak five words with my mind, he adds, than 10,000 words in a tongue. In other words, it was and may still be a rare gift of the Spirit and one which is to be identified differently than preaching or in any other kind of uh, prophetic uh, Bible explanation. It was a gift of the Spirit which didn't necessarily employ the mind Firstly, it wasn't that it couldn't be controlled, but it wasn't a thing that the mind produces. In fact, the word ecstasy suggests a, a throwing of the mind out of its normal state. And I think this distinction is important. When I was quite a young believer, a church somewhat foolishly made me an elder at the age of 19 or 20. Although many things that happened in that church were inspired, I don't believe that my appointment was. I think it was probably just desperate. And in this particular church, which is actually in other regards a particularly good church, God was genuinely at work there. People spoke in tongues. And to experience it, it was to watch a kind of childlike babbling, sometimes melodic, indiscernible syllables strung together that would make no sense to an outsider. Some of it, in my experience, probably was forced some of it probably was a product of the mind. You know how people like to fit in. Shandy banana, we used to call it. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul was talking almost about an unexpectedly personal 
supernatural utterance that the Spirit would fall upon someone. And it doesn't appear to do anybody any good apart from the person themselves. Now, I have never authentically experienced it myself. I've seen it happening, and I think I've seen it genuinely happening, but I'm unsure. I think for a Presbyterian, it's so bizarre and uncategorizable, you can see why it's given the Calvinists the willies for years. Presbyterians have often been, in fact, the harshest critics of what has been called in its time satanic gibberish, and others, even quite prominent church leaders, have called the climax of demon worship. And of course, we know there are fakes and there are counterfeits to all the gifts that God has given. But at least for the, holy, the early church, the Bible says this was a thing. It was a genuine thing. Who then is the Holy Spirit and how does he give gifts to the church? You can see what I mean about the order. In many ways, this should have been dealt with first. In the time remaining, we're going to deal with the specific verses we've read in today's Bible reading and use them to answer the question of who the Spirit is and how he gives gifts to the church. Notice the Corinthians have written to Paul because they're unsure about what these things mean and how to handle them, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in public worship. What's their relationship with these manifestations of the Spirit? Has the Spirit given gifts in an uneven, hierarchical way, preferring some over others so that some get gifts and others don't? What should they expect when the Spirit comes in power? Well, you can see how Paul loves them and is so concerned for them as a pastor. First, God wants them to know him, Paul's telling them, and interact with him, interact with God. What does he tell them in verse 1? He doesn't want them to be uninformed. In other words, he doesn't want them not to know what's going on. And this is a hallmark of Christianity. It's a hallmark of the way that God deals with us by the gospel, in that we shouldn't be left in a kind of ignorant state. Christianity employs both the heart and the mind, And God means it should be so. On the one hand, after all, we're dealing with someone who is orders of magnitude upon magnitude greater than we are. We will never fully understand him, even when we are in his physical presence. I think what helps me sometimes is to say, I don't know much about quantum physics and how it works, and I know less than how I know about quantum physics than I do about the creator of quantum physics and what he means it to operate as. We have to make peace with the fact that the God who made all of this, including you and me, has told us what he is like by analogy from things that we do know to describe things that we don't. But he has, nevertheless, sought fit to explain them to us. Jesus described the Holy Spirit, notice, not by explaining the transdimensional interdependence of an infinite, tripersonal, now incarnated spiritual being, but by saying the Spirit is like a friend who will come alongside you if you're carrying something heavy and will pick up the heavy end of it. So here is a God whom we will never fully understand, but who wants us to understand what he tells us about him mentally and also emotionally to relate to him. 
Second of all, God wants them to know him through Jesus Christ. That too is Paul's point to them. So Paul draws this picture from the Corinthians' own experience of pagan worship in in verse 2, notice. There was, there's a bit of a background to this, there was an annual procession in ancient Corinth called the Pompeii, where people would be led in processions to statues of the Greek gods and just stand there silently and nothing would happen. It's an accident of American English that translates them pretty well as dumb idols, but that's what they were. There was something particularly unintelligent and unhelpful about them. But Paul is telling the church, this is a whole new ball game. Here is someone who is not like that. God is not a fiction. He will interact with you because he's really there. Surprisingly, yes. Mysteriously, yes. Intelligently, gently, personally. And not just within a church. But for you where you are, he has promised to be with you and to interact with you. But particularly in worship, you will participate with what he is doing. So you can be sure of this, Paul says, if someone says from their heart, Jesus be cursed, because all kinds of people could wander into worship, however impressive that person may be, you can be sure, he says, that the Spirit is not at work in them. But if someone says from their heart, Jesus is Lord, you should recognize, whatever doubts you may have about them, that God's Spirit is with them. And he's saying this because of what he said about communion in chapter 11, which we're going to look at next week. But he's also saying it because of unity and the Corinthian tendency to snobbery and to elitism and to preferring one person over another and playing the I'm better than you card, which of course we're no strangers to either. There's none of that, Paul's saying, with the Holy Spirit. It is striking to me, if you read the story in Acts 10 of Cornelius, the Roman centurion who was converted, when the apostles heard about it in Jerusalem, their reaction when they heard about tongues was not to say this is fake or this is weird, but this is something because it means God is treating the people we previously called dogs Gentiles, just like us, just like the Jews, because there is a fundamental unity there in the Holy Spirit in Christ's church. So notice the basic denominator of God's favor is not actually ecstatic spiritual experience that someone might lay claim to, but rather the simplest expression of praise at who Christ is. Jesus is Lord So you see, this is where the Spirit of God and the human heart meet across the magnitudes of his glory and our frailty. So even the lowliest person, or from our perspective, the most damaged, sinful person, shouting out in praise under inspiration of the Spirit, Jesus is Lord, is accounted above the proud silence of kings and CEOs and fallen angels. Third, God wants them to enjoy, verses 4 to 6, the vast variety of his gifts for his church. That's what Paul has to say. I've always been struck by Jesus' description of what God is like in Luke when he says that God 
will give to us a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Because in those agricultural images of how God would, would deal with farmers, so he's saying, Paul's saying, God is inherently generous and abundantly resourceful and entirely creative with his gifts. The person, in other words, that you are dealing with is not a miser. The same creator who delighted to make 6,000 species of ladybugs, I've always thought one color was enough, but not for him. Presumably, he likes them. This is the same God who gives to his people gifts and a variety of them, Paul is saying, even in worship. And so these are some of them that were described at Corinth. Verse 8, messages of wisdom or of knowledge, which seem to be the gifts of God speaking directly into specific situations which the Corinthians would know about, as Peter did with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, because secrets would be laid bare. And then in verse 9, the gift of faith to be shared for the encouragement of all president, present. The confidence which begins with one and spreads throughout the body that God will work in even the most impossible situations, which leads in turn to prayers for healing and the power to see miracles done by the Spirit of God. And third, verse 10, the gifts of prophecy, which is the declaration of God's will among his people. Now, some people have interpreted this simply as preaching. There's reason to believe that it's more than that, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 14. The ability that follows it is to distinguish between spirits. And that means specifically that when a prophecy was given, being able to check out its source as to whether it had indeed authentically come from God or from human beings or from some other darker source. And finally, tongues, what someone has unkindly called the problem child at the end of the list. What's remarkable is that, kind of like the ladybugs, this list is replicated nowhere else in the lists that are given to the churches of God's gifts, suggesting even more variety than we have counted on and the need to be both expectant, watching and reading and knowing the Bible, looking to an order that is given within the structures of the church, particularly those who are called to eldership, to be careful in the way we interpret all of this. As I close, speaking of carefulness, a close friend wrote to me this week telling he, me he was praying for him and for me on the eve of Valentine's Day. I quote, he said, the potential pitfalls are many. I think it's hardly a coincidence that this date marks historical executions and massacres. The disappointments that earthly husbands can be is, I'm afraid, no surprise. But the hope of a greater husband, a greater gift giver, is there. It's been placed in the hearts of the daughters of Eve, I think, for a reason. So see this list and see within it the need to know what each of these things is. We're going to revisit them in a couple of weeks to meditate on the generosity and the delight of God who has, within the unity of his people, bound his people together by his Spirit and displayed for them and among them a variety of his gifts at different times and different places. You see, God wants you to know him. God wants you to be led by him God wants you to expect 
that he will work in public worship and to see worship as the time when we should enjoy his presence together. Now, how that may look nowadays, and for us in our context, as I say, will be a question we'll deal with next time. Above all, if I could leave you with this thought, what you have understood about Jesus and his rescue for you, which is a free gift waiting for you if you have not yet claimed it, in the same way, these are the gifts of God given through his Spirit to those who have received Jesus. That's the offer on the table. That is the generosity of God. Let's pray. Father, speaking for many of us, these things are things of wonder to us. We have not personally experienced them. We have not understood or seen, perhaps even firsthand, the direct working of the Spirit in these miraculous, inexplainable things, these works of power that were seen, particularly in the first century of the church. But we have been given, Lord, we know, your Spirit, that he is present among us, that he is present within us. And our desire, Lord, our, our, really our discipline is, is that we should make room for him in our own hearts and within the operations of the church. Lord, would you give us time today just to be quiet and to ask you what would your Holy Spirit say to us as we read the Bible and as we think about the opportunities we have before us and the ways that we too are called to pray and to act in faith. In Christ's name. Amen.